Welcome to Books at Work, the best and most useful bits of business books. I'm Anna Hughes and my professional purpose is to help people love their work. I really hope you find things in Books at Work to try at work to make work better. Growth mindset is about practicing, you know, uh, an optimistic mindset, a, a looking for the future, looking for opportunity, looking for positive things. And I know that sounds really woo-woo and a bit hippie, but actually it's not. Like the psychology and the science now proves that this stuff actually works. That's the voice of David Downs. He's co-author with Joe Davis of Silver Linings, Kiwi Success Stories in Times of COVID. It's the perfect complement to our last episode, Backable as it's full of businesses and organisations with ideas for change. Congrats to Olga Speranskaya, who won the backable book from last week's episode. To go into the draw for each episode's book, please follow us on Instagram, Books at Work, or provide feedback or give me ideas about other books that we could feature on the show. Right, on to our speed read of Silver Linings. This is one good-looking book. It's full of stories of Kiwi organisations and their COVID experiences. The likes of Fix and Fog, Hills Hats, Volcano Coffee, Curvy Rentals, and even the New Zealand Defence Force. People who didn't or couldn't hunker down during COVID. So what did they do? Let's go through some of the things that are talked about in the book before we chat to the author, David Downs, shortly. First of all, they changed. They changed their strategy, in some cases, just to survive. Good George Brewery is an example. The good bit means a lot to these guys. During COVID, they switched to making hand sanitizer, and they gave it away. Then there's Fix and Fog peanut butter. They set up a US factory just as COVID hit. So they ended up remotely building their brand using the kiwiness of the peanut butter and Kiwi connections in the US to build presence and profile. Then there's those folk who used COVID as an ideas incubator. For many Kiwi companies, lockdown was an incredible phase of innovation. One of those was an organisation called Home Care Medical. They had this issue of how to find 800 staff ASAP to run telehealth services. What did they do? they repurposed travel call centre teams. And within 24 hours, they had 300 staff ready to go, trained and with IT support. And then there were those businesses that didn't focus on the doors closing for them. They weren't wasting time on this. Instead, they put their efforts and time into doing and thinking differently about their lives. And as a result, they found new doors opening and new paths for success. One of those was NanoGirl Labs. NanoGirl Labs works to transform how people learn and think about science, technology, engineering and maths, what we call STEM. During the first lockdown, their business evaporated, but they transformed and kick-started a huge period of rapid growth. In just four days, they went from a live events operation to a fully online subscription programme. Silver Linings also puts a spotlight on the unwelcome but pleasant surprises, the unpredictability and the unplanned, but ultimately turned into welcome surprises. New Zealand Flower is an example of that. Flower became the unsung hero of the pandemic, as most of us baked up a storm. 
Another example is predator-free Wellington, where we listened to birdsong and took time to enjoy the bird life. This was supported by another innovative organisation, the Next Foundation, which invests in transformational environmental and education projects in New Zealand. Silver Linings tells us real and real-life stories of effective, innovative crisis response. And it tells us that there are some fundamental features for success, whether we're in a crisis or just in normal times. So here they are. One, action. Two, adaptability. Three, awareness. Four, community. And five, culture. This book has a subtitle, Kiwi Success Stories in a Time of COVID. It also sums up how we do things in New Zealand. Aotearoa, land of the long white cloud or just one long silver lining. Let's hear more about this from David Downs, one of the authors. So we've got on the line David Downs, who's co-author with Joe Davis of Silver Linings, our wonderful book that we've just summarised with all those beautiful case studies from New Zealanders who did amazing things during COVID. Welcome, David. Kia ora, morena. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. It's very nice to be part of your podcast arrangements. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Now, keen to understand where in the world are you today and what's the view out your window? Interestingly, because I knew you would ask that question, I've flown all the way to Gisborne, New Zealand, just to have a better view out the window. And I'm looking at, well, I never knew, but they have a beautiful area where three rivers come together and there's a sort of a little harbour and a marina and everything. And it's just gorgeous. And it's eight o'clock in the morning and beautiful sun rising in the east, the first place in the world to see the sun. It's beautiful. What a wonderful way to start the day. So let's get into it. And keen to start with a, a kind of general question about silver linings. What was the one standout thing from it that you learned uh, to help businesses and people deal with change? It's a difficult question. I, I reckon there's a, in the book, we talk about some really key lessons that we sort of derived from the many case studies, but there's a sort of a meta lesson across the whole lot of them, which is that your future is not preordained. COVID came along does not mean that you have to fail or that um, things are going to be bad. And this, the, the, the businesses and the people and the communities in the book were ones that made decisions that changed their future, if you know what I mean. So I guess that's the key lesson for me is that actually, even in really difficult times, there's always a chance, there's always optimism, there's always hope for a different future. What I loved about the book is there are so many stories and they're so different and I've read and reread a few of them and I get something different each time when I read them. How many mm-hmm. stories are there roughly in the book? Oh, we, we nearly, I think up close to 100. Um, when we first got asked to write the book, we thought, you know, okay, I can think of maybe five or six uh, organisations doing quite well at the moment, and Joe could think of a couple, and, you know, so we thought, oh, yeah, that'll be And then we, we've kept finding more and more and more until the end we had to say, stop, that's enough. And, and even now I look back and go, oh, there's that other great company I've just heard about. That would have been a great story, but, you know, you've got to draw a line. Yeah, lovely mix of different stories. It's just such an inspiring read. And one of the things that inspired me was that, Within those stories, there were so so many wonderful examples of how to bring business concepts to life. So things like adaptability, leadership, yeah. um, you know, pivoting, 
Um, so yeah, yeah it was really. You only have to say that three times during this interview. You've already used it once. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the last time. Um, so yeah, really keen to kind of dig into some of those concepts and how they were brought to life and, and what you discovered in yeah. the book. Yeah, and I'm glad you picked that up because. I, I don't like reading business books that are completely theory and just sort of say, you must do this, you must do this. I much prefer, and humans kind of react better to stories. And so I, I love telling these stories. And in the stories is threaded, hopefully threaded, and you've noticed the, the lessons that you're trying to teach people or, or learn yourself, really. And, you know, and what we were looking at is all these different opportunities to learn about how companies and organizations and people reacted. And we discovered, you know, well, not discovered, we sort of realized there's, there's multiple different things. What, one key thing is this, the sorts of organizations in here or people in here are ones that take action quickly, that don't sort of get hung up waiting, making decisions, forming a committee, writing a new business case, sending it off for review, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's right. That's fine in the normal world and, the, and kind of real world and but in unusual times you need to have this predisposition to action and that was something that's really common across pretty much all of these stories um and and that comes from a lot of these things come from a, like an organizational culture that's already been built um you know if you've got a culture that is adaptable that gives empowerment to people to make the right decisions that has good you know clear leadership but not directive all the time leadership um you you end up with an with an organization that can react really fast Whereas if you're top down and you're very hierarchical and all decisions float upwards, et cetera, then when something like this comes along, you kind of end up in stasis because no one can make a decision. Everyone's scared. Everyone does, you know, shrinks instead of grows. And I think that was a, that's a kind of a common thing too. So yeah, we, I've, I sort of make the, the point when I talk to businesses about lessons in this book that the best time to build an organizational culture is now, not when you're in crisis. And crisis is when you lean on the culture. Um, you don't, you don't fix the roof when it's raining, you fix it when it's fine. So now that we're kind of in New Zealand, out of the crisis, right, go back and learn the lessons. And are those businesses you're talking to realising that? Are they doing something about their culture? Some are, most aren't, just to be frank with you. And and in fact, it's not just even businesses. I think at that um, time during COVID, it was really impressive to see organisations that you don't think of as innovative be innovative. So, you know, government, for example, you know, we had government agencies, you know, working really quickly to get the wage subsidy out or changing the rules around things or setting up border, all that sort of stuff happened incredibly fast. And I went, yes, that means government can innovate. It's like, well, it's a revelation. And unfortunately, <laughs> you now see this, this going back to this kind of the normal risk averse, closed, closed shop, you know, hierarchy, uh, hierarchical decision making. That, that worries me a little bit, but actually, I, you know, I do see other companies going, oh, okay, we, we, we did okay, but we could have done better. What was it about how we went through it? And I really hope that around all the board tables and management team meetings and dinner tables for the smaller businesses of New Zealand, people are going, hey, let's just stop and reflect back what went well, what didn't go well. But I worry that some just go, right, keep going forward, and they don't learn. I do think that post-crisis people have kind of gone back to the, the same old playbook that they had before or the same kind of organizational design and and that just feels to me like a bit of a wasted opportunity um at the risk of really trotting out the cliches you know crisis and opportunity are the same thing uh and the opportunity was there to survive and thrive during COVID, and the companies in the book did um but if you just go back to the old way of doing things again then did you really learn anything you know did you did you use that opportunity to think differently about how to empower the team or, or treat your customers better or whatever it might be that, that was a hallmark of the success of the businesses we saw here? 
So let's pick that up a bit about some of those that did do things differently and have a chat about some of those. There were a couple, well, there were so many stories that I loved, but a couple that I was interested in. And one was field days. When I talk to different people about the book, they all put, pick different examples and it makes me go, okay, right, yeah, why field days? Um, field days is a great example. I mean, for those who don't know, National Field Days in New Zealand is the biggest event pretty much the biggest event in the country. It's just that most people who live in the cities don't know because there's 120,000 farmers and farm suppliers and others in the rural sector who gather together for a three or four day period at National Field Days, which is near Hamilton, and have been doing for many years. Amazing event. And it's almost a rite of passage for every Kiwi to go to one, by the way, uh, I believe. Um, but anyway, of course, they, that couldn't happen last year. And Field Days is a, a, a society that you know, needs the um, needs to bring these people together. It's an organisation that's got to fund itself, etc. Um, but they had to, and you'd think farmers, field days, you know, farm supply. It's not, it's not the most modern way of, you know, that that would be my perception. But these guys had to work really fast, and they set up field days TV, uh, actually, literally in a TV studio. They they broadcast over the same period as field days. They got the prime minister to open it. They did sessions on health, wellness, well-being, mental health which is again, many people who aren't in the farming community might go, wow, okay, I would have thought it'd been mapped fertilizer and you know fence posts. They did that as well. But actually they thought about who are the people that are in our, in our um, community and what do they need from us? And they had massive success because they, they moved so quickly that they managed to kind of get a huge international audience who were really interested. No one was going to events though. Everyone was really keen. They had this big international audience and I was talking to, um, the chief executive field days the other day, and they're, they're going to carry on doing it this year. They'll, they'll have the in-person field days, but they're going to carry on this kind of broadcast field days as well with all these extra components that, that came along, you know, really quickly last year. So amazing speed to market, really. I think they stood it all up in about five or six weeks. So were there any particular business practices or ways of working that uh, helped them be successful? I've got a great connection with their customers, suppliers, well, they would call them sponsors, um, that led them, that let them able to, you know, move really quickly and innovate very fast. So that, you know, the, the sorts of organisations that normally come and set up a massive marquee and tent and basically, you know, run, run little shows could all quickly go, right, well, how can we do the same sort of thing in this, in this online world? So that relationship with their customers and not thinking about themselves first, which is again a bit of a hallmark of success of many of the organizations in the book. You know, many, many of them say, let's do the right thing by our customers, let's not worry about the money. And then through doing that, actually they came out financially all right um, because they put the customer really first. And it was the same here, you know, these guys put their, their suppliers, their sponsors, their exhibitors, and then actually, you know, it all kind of turned out all right. Another thing in the book that I really loved was there was language around stepping up and growth mindsets, which, you know, in a normal organisation on a day-to-day -day basis, that's the sort of stuff that we like to see as individuals and leaders. Um, and we talk about it a lot, but not everyone can do that. Is there yeah. anything that you learnt from any of the, the stories? I particularly liked the, is it Olaf Farms and yeah, Machines? Yeah, I mean, the growth mindset thing is huge. Um, all, I, I firmly believe that you you can practice optimism and pessimism and whichever one you choose to practice you get really good at it um <laughs> growth mindset is about practicing you know uh, an optimistic mindset a, a looking for the future looking for opportunity looking for positive things and i know that sounds really woo-woo and a bit hippie but actually it's not like the psychology and the science now proves that this stuff actually works if you start your day going oh 
here's all the stuff that's going to go wrong and here's all the things that are going to be hard and difficult and here's all the stuff that's yucky then likely you'll end the day feeling the same way if you start the day going wow i wonder how i could make the best of this and there's that meeting i'm how could I be the best? What's the best outcome I could get? How could I be prepared? Your mind's in this opportunity mindset and you're looking for the for the gaps. So Olaf Farm's a great a great example. They are a um they make they don't make um, eggs. The chickens make the eggs, but they they help the chickens by giving them environment to make eggs. And those eggs are really high quality. I can personally attest I buy them. Um and, and the reason I buy them is because they now sell direct to consumer. Previously, they sold into the food service trade, you know, cafes, restaurants, et cetera. But, but during um, COVID, their really high quality product, a little bit more expensive than your average supermarket egg, um, was going to waste because all of their channel had disappeared. There were no restaurants and cafes to sell them. And so they did this little cool campaign called Save Our Girls. You know, and they were going, we, our chickens need your help. And it was all on social media and they made a kind of fun of it, you know, look, all these chickens that were going to be out of work of course they're not but you know um and then started this direct to consumer channel uh, again really really rapidly selling eggs and delivering them around you know they're north of auckland so delivering around the auckland region um massive uptake people are really keen on good high quality food because we all start conscious about our, our personal health but also wanting to you know liking this campaign and wanting to help this business out so now they've got that as, a, as another another string to their bow another channel for their egg so if you haven't had them try them out well we're trying so was there any practical tip from that that we could apply in our day-to-day -day lives the first one is speed like these these people didn't didn't sit around waiting while there were dozens and dozens of eggs every day just going bad hundreds of dozens probably um the other one is reaching out in innovative kind of interesting ways that are you know they were they were looking for the opportunity looking for the gaps they were sitting there going i wonder what anyone's doing at home they probably need a boiled egg how do we get them a boiled egg you know it's, it's, <laughs> that's 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 the kind of opportunity growth mindset they weren't sitting there going how do we destroy half our chickens or how do we you know, um, turn these eggs into some waste product thing. They were looking for the opportunity bit. So that's that growth mindset. So I think those are the sorts of things, you know, I love I love thinking about what, what were they thinking when they made that decision. Yeah, and that looking for the gaps, I really like that, that perspective and mindset. I'm going to think about that a little bit more and how I can apply that. Now, David, I, I really loved SOS. And that was one thing that I really loved and saw emerge during COVID and your role in that, I really loved that. So I was really yeah. keen to understand well what that is and what it yeah. was like getting it up and what you learned. Yeah, I mean, it was partly why we wrote the book because I had had that experience and I'll tell you about it in a second. And Joe had had a similar experience with his business, NanoGirl Labs, where they had to change completely really fast. And it made us go, wow, I mean, there are lots of people doing these sorts of things. Um, the SOS thing came about with a couple of days before our national lockdown in New Zealand, and, and we knew we were all going into lockdown and all the tourists were disappearing and the planes were flying out. It was all very sort of melancholy and sad. And I remember being in the, in the cafe down the road from where I live and uh, talking to the owner, Peter, and just saying, well, what are you going to do in the next six weeks? We're all going to be holed up at home. Many of us can work from home, but you can't. And he said, oh, I'm pretty much going to go bankrupt. I think I'm just going to shut the doors. And I said, why, why don't you, you know, I'll buy you a coffee every day or whatever. Just just stick a voucher on your website and I'll buy one. And he went, oh, I don't know how to do that. You know, I make food and coffee. I don't do that. So I thought, well, I do. So I went home and I, and I whipped up a website, um, put vouchers for, on behalf of him, gave him a call and said, are you okay with this? And then I called a few other cafes and restaurants around um, my neighborhood. And yeah, lo and behold, they were all dead keen, of course, because they 
you know, they didn't have any way to do this. And then what we were basically doing, it grew and grew and grew, but what, what the SOS thing was actually doing was connecting people, the community really strong feelings of goodwill and community support and supporting small business to the need of the, those people that had it. And we were just sort of the middlemen uh, and women, um, basically connecting people up. And it was just so, that was what was the coolest thing is that we, at the end, well, it's still going actually, but um, at the end of that lockdown, there were two and a half thousand businesses on the platform. We were doing tens of thousands of dollars a day uh, in vouchers where people would just, like you and I would just jump online and buy a $5 or a $20 voucher. And then they would, they would get this voucher. They could use it later when the cafe opens, although watch the space. Um, and then the cafe would get the money straight away and we didn't take any money. It was just a pure charity thing. What we've discovered also, even cooler, is that about half of those um, vouchers have never been redeemed and probably never, well, well they won't now actually because we put a six month limit on them. Um, but but that was people were saying that to us at the time is that we don't actually want the coffee, but we really want that cafe to be there when we come, when we come back. And we really like that guy who we don't know his name, but he makes our coffee every morning. He knows exactly what we like. And it's just such a lovely idea that the community was around and it just needed that connection between them. So lots of, you know, real people, hearts, uh, stuff going on there, David. And that leads me to the next question. There's stuff in the book about humans count. And, you know, we hear a lot about human-centered design and, you know, putting people first. So I loved the fact that you talked about humans count and just wondering why you did dedicated a section on that. I've written a few books before, a lot about business and a lot about companies. And fundamentally, companies aren't anything apart from the assets that they have and the ideas that they have. And, and those ideas and those assets are pretty much the people. So, you know, all organizations say our most important asset is the people. And then they present a balance sheet, which has got nothing to do with people. Or that, you know, they, they produce widgets or whatever. They might worry about their customers. But but I think, I firmly believe that 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 individuals make a huge difference. And one of the beautiful things about COVID, um, and there were many, is a bit like what we're doing now. We got to see each other in a different way. Like we weren't putting on our work suits. Well, I've got a bit of a work suit on now, but um, we were at home. Sometimes we were at the kitchen table while the, while the kids are making dinner and, and there were people running around. And in one memorable Zoom call, one of my workmates' husband walked out of the shower <laughs> Start naked. Um, <laughs> the, point, the point is more, we got to know each other as people. And then you also realise, and again, there's lots of stories in the book here about organisations that looked after their people first and just said, look, the number one thing to look after, your number one job is look after yourself and your family and your health and your mental health and your wellness. And then if at the end of that, you've got some time to do some kind of work, that, that'd be great. But you know, that's not it. And so many stories in here of organisations that do that, that, that set up these these practices for people to just allow them to do what they needed to do. Now, I do just want to wrap up with a question that I've been curious about, about why you why you and Joe wanted to write the book and what you hope to achieve from it. I enjoy the process of hearing people's stories and thinking about how I'm going to tell them on their behalf and then and then seeing them come to life in a book. And so I, it's more, you know, complete ego probably. Um, but but the other thing is, I genuinely believe that storytelling is the way to, to learn lessons, you know, as I mentioned earlier. And so by, by telling these stories, you can create this sense of optimism for some businesses. And, and I've been, you know, lucky enough to talk to a few groups about the stories in the book and you can start to see people, the penny drop. 
you know, go, oh, okay. They were just ordinary companies and they did that and now they got that. And you go, yeah, yeah, they were no different than you. They just thought differently or moved differently. And because everyone's going, oh no, the companies that, that got through this were the ones with the massive balance sheets that had huge amounts of cash on hand. No, that's not true. Some of them did, many of them didn't. Um, that wasn't the factor that made the difference. So you kind of get people to think about their organizations and their businesses in a different way. And I and I really like that. And I, I just, I'll, I'll finish up by saying, I think in New Zealand, our, we've got a lot going for us. The thing that, we, that holds us back the most is our own sense of uh, aspiration. New Zealanders think too small, generally. We don't have that kind of, you know, really big picture thinking, really big aspirations. And if you can tell a few stories and get people just to lift their kind of horizon a little bit, well, then it's worth it. That's fantastic, David. Thank you. I certainly love the book and there's so much in there and that bring the stories that bring to life so many business principles. And I hope that people get that out of our, our conversation and this episode. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Let's get on to our silver linings, take five in 60 seconds. One, speed matters. Take action quickly during a crisis. Two, look for opportunities in the gaps. You can practice optimism to build a growth mindset and find opportunities in the gaps. Three, build culture now, don't wait, and then lean on it during a crisis. Four, think and move differently. Ordinary companies during COVID that thought and moved differently about their business were successful. And five, think big, lift your horizons. Limiting aspirations only hold us back. That's our Books at Work Silver Linings episode done and dusted. Please let me know what you think. Follow our Instagram page, Books at Work, and check us out on booksatwork.co.nz. I'm Anna Hughes, and that's Books at Work, making work better.